Well, it's good to see you. I, uh, I've, I'll be honest with you, I've been kind of dreading this week because for a couple of weeks now, I knew I had to preach this passage. And this is not an easy passage to preach. In fact, most of the Sermon on the Mount is not easy to preach because it is the greatest sermon ever preached, of course, by our Lord Jesus. And it's the most powerful sermon ever preached. It touches on all kinds of subjects. And then last week, of course, Pastor Jonathan preached on the subject of prayer, its importance, its power. And, and it was a, a wonderful message reminding us of, of, of just the goodness that prayer does in your own life, but also how it, it brings about fellowship with you and the Lord. It's a gift, Jonathan said. It's a precious, precious gift, this opportunity we have to just fellowship with God. But you know, it's interesting because in that same chapter last week, if you, if you read it closely, you see that three different times Jesus addresses the issue of hypocrisy. He's talking about the Pharisees, the church folk. He says the, the Pharisees are hypocritical in the way they give. They're hypocritical in the way they pray. And they're hypocritical in the way they, they fast. And then you get to chapter 7 and Jesus continues this, this subject of hypocrisy. And, and this is where we find ourselves today in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Now, this is an interesting passage. In fact, it's a lot to this. And I don't know how, how much I can get out in the next few moments that we have because I got way more to say than I have time to say it. So I would encourage you throughout the week to just do an exhaustive study on these 12 verses. They're pretty powerful. But it's a continuation of where Jesus left off in chapter 6. And one of the last things he says in chapter 6 in verse 33 is he says, Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added to you, unto you. And he's talking about, of course, the simple things like what to drink, what you're going to wear, what you're going to uh, eat. The little simple things of life that God so graciously provides for us, just like he does even the smallest of sparrows on the ground. So seek first, he says, the kingdom of God. Now, this entire message is about the kingdom of God, this, this new kingdom that this new king, the Lord Jesus, has come to establish on earth. And the entire message is how we, as the children of this king, are supposed to live. And a lot of this message is how we're supposed to live in relationship to our Lord, the first commandment, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus does in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, is he turns now our attention to a new subject, the subject of relationships. And he says some pretty hard things here. Before I jump in, let me just illustrate it with this. There's uh, I was listening to Tony Evans talk about this subject this last week, and he told this story about a man who called his friend, who was a doctor, and he said, look, uh, doctor, I, I got to bring my wife in next week. I, I've been watching her, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that she's having a real hard time hearing. She's got some hearing problems. And the doctor said, okay, well, let's set an, a, an appointment for her, and and, and you can bring her in next Tuesday. But over the weekend, if you don't mind, just do a little experiment there at the house. If you, if you see her, maybe with her back turned to you, maybe she's cooking or doing some work around the house, um, just speak to her from like 15 feet away. And if she doesn't answer, then 
move about 10 feet away. And if she still doesn't answer, then move about five feet away. And if she still doesn't answer, then we will know that we've got an issue and, and I'll be happy to run some tests next week. And so sure enough, the man comes home from work day. His wife is home before he is. She's in the kitchen and she's making something. And so he gets about 15 feet away from her. Her back is turned and he says, honey, what are you making? And there's no answer. So he moves about 10 feet away and he says, honey, what are you making? No answer. So he moves about five feet away. He says, honey, what are you making? Still no answer. So he gets right in her face and says, honey, what are you making? And (laughs) she finally slams the spoon down, looks at him and says, for the fourth time, I'm making vegetable soup. You see, sometimes the problem is us. Now look at Matthew chapter 12, I mean chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, judge not so that you won't be judged. Now this is one of the most commonly misused phrases in all the Bible, isn't it? I mean... Total heathens, people who don't believe the Bible, don't read the Bible, don't even believe in God, love to use this verse against those of us who are believers. They love to throw this one up. And and most of the time, it's done in a snarky way, and they even quote the King James. Don't judge, lest you be judged. How many times have you heard that, right? Well, the problem is, until you understand this verse in its context, Often we misuse this. We don't have a proper understanding of what Jesus was actually saying. So let's dive into what does he really mean? Well, the, the issue is, is that when people say this phrase to you, they love to, to use it to throw it in our faces, Christians, from the perspective often of someone who is a, a relativist, or, or they believe that the basis for morality is determined by what they feel is right. And that's what a relativist does. He, he or she believes that we, we all get to determine what is right and what is wrong on our own accord, because the standard is based on how we all feel as individuals. So if I feel this is right, then it's okay. If you feel this is right, then it's okay for you too, right? It's all up to us. There's no need for the Bible or some other standard of truth. There's certainly no need for some higher power to help us figure it out. We got this. Everybody's just do your own thing. So to the relativist, there's no need for God because in relativism, you get to be God. How convenient is that? You get to make the calls. And the only sin in relativism is intolerance. So if you call someone out on something that maybe even for centuries has been viewed as wrong by all of society, then you're now judgmental and you're intolerant. And so our society now has developed an 11th commandment. Don't judge, don't say anything, because we're not supposed to judge. Who are we to judge? But that's not really what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is clearly condemning the act of judging others with a self-righteous attitude. We're we're never to judge others by having a different standard for them than we do for ourselves. 
So he's not saying check your brain and your common sense at the door at the risk of offending somebody else. Every law enforcement agent, every judge in the courtroom, every umpire on a baseball field, every referee on a football field, every parent who ever lived, all of us have to make judgments all the time based on what is right and for the rules and what is against the rules or that which is wrong. So is Jesus saying here that we cannot make a determination or a judgment between what is wrong and what is right? Absolutely not. There is a standard, but it is set by God, not us. God's the final judge, not us. But that does not mean that we're to shut off our understanding of right and wrong. The Bible is quite clear about what is right and wrong. So we have to make judgments over what is right and wrong based on God's standard. If you murder someone and I say you're a murderer because I saw you do it, that's not really a judgment, that's just a fact. The issue comes when we make a judgment about someone that's based off of our own opinion or our own personal preference with the agenda of condemning them. So what Jesus is saying here is that we are not to criticize or condemn other people's actions or their attitudes or their possessions or their positions their portfolio, their attire, their opinions. And we're really good at doing that, aren't we? We cast judgments on just about anyone who isn't like us. And when we're like that, then we're in the wrong, Jesus says. He says, for you will be judged, in verse 2, by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use, not just by others, but by God himself. God is going to hold us accountable to the same standard that we use when we interact with others. And condemnation has a certain way of boomeranging on us, doesn't it? I read just the other day about a guy who bought a new boomerang and, and uh, was killed when he tried to throw the other one away. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's really a dad joke right there. <laughs> But the point is, when we judge other people harshly, others will judge us harshly. And the church is the worst at this, aren't we? We love to shoot our wounded. We can be the most condescending, backbiting, condemning, and criticizing place on earth. Wouldn't you just love to come to church knowing that not a single person is going to say anything bad about you or judge you for anything that you've done or said? Wouldn't it be wonderful just to know that this was a place of grace and and you could be really the authentic person that you want to be. I mean, we have moments like that, I know, but in a group like this, in a small town like this, there's so much judgmentalism that goes on, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Wouldn't you just love to come in a room like this knowing that not one single person is judging you for anything that you're wearing, anything that you're driving, any place that you live, it's just a place of grace and love and authenticity. How wonderful would that be? Well, I believe that's the way Jesus wants it to be. Hmm. So Jesus says, don't judge. How? Well, let me give you a few examples. Don't judge unfairly. We've got to be careful about coming to quick decisions about people when we really don't know all the facts. In 1962, there was a record company exec, a very well-known executive from a very well-known company, and they had a group that was trying to get signed for a record deal called the Beatles. And he said, well, we don't think the Beatles would do anything in their market because guitar groups are on their way out. Wrong-o. 
How about this? A young aspiring artist was fired from his first major newspaper job because he had, quote, little talent and creativity as an artist. And so Walt Disney lived to prove them otherwise. He was unfairly misjudged. I would say to you that we need to consider several things before we say a word about anybody about anything. First of all, consider what is their history? What's their upbringing? Do they act a certain way because of their history? Have they been abused? Are they on medication? What's the story? And then ask yourself, what's their heart? What's their heart behind this? And then ask yourself, what is their motive? Maybe their motive is pure. They just went about it the wrong way. And then ask yourself this, what's the facts? Are we too quick to judge because we don't have all the facts? I just heard about a story about a, a lady that was in the airport the other day and she had about an hour and a half layover and she decided, well, I'm just gonna grab me a little bag of Oreos and I'm gonna buy this new book right here in this bookstore and I'm gonna go sit in my gate and I'm gonna read my book and eat my Oreos. So she sits down <clears throat> and she begins to read her book and reaches down for her bag of Oreos and about that time a man had come to sit right next to her. And in her absolute shock, he reaches down takes that bag of Oreos and opens it up and takes a cookie out and eats it. She couldn't believe it. She gave that judgmental look that we're really good at doing. <laughs> so she thinks, well, I'm not gonna let him get away with this. This is my Oreo. So she reaches over, takes the Oreo, stares at him while she eats it and just gives him a look like, you better not touch that again. Well, sure enough, man, a few minutes later, he reached down, takes another Oreo out of the bag. Well, this is, she can't believe it. She's so mad. So she takes another Oreo out of the bag and stares at him while she eats that one. Well, now we're down to the last two Oreos. And to her utter amazement, he takes another one out of the bag and eats it. She's so mad she can't even see straight. She certainly can't concentrate on her book. So about the time she decides she's going to reach for that last Oreo, he reaches in and gets the last one, splits it in half, leaves the other half with her, and then walks off. And he's smiling the whole time. She thought, what a jerk. She gets on the plane, storms on there, sits down in her seat, and she's thinking to herself, I cannot believe it. She reaches in her purse to get a Kleenex, and there in her purse is her bag of Oreos. Have you ever done anything like that, by the way? I have. I do it to my wife all the time. I like those replay commercials where you get to do a replay, you know, watch the replay. That's what, man. Don't judge people unfairly, but don't judge people superficially either. John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus has had an encounter with people. And he had just healed somebody on the Sabbath and they're questioning on it. And then he says these words in verse 24, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Look beneath the surface, he said. So many of us just judge everybody superficially, don't we? And listen, there's not a single one of us in this room that's, that's not guilty of this. 
including the guy who's talking to you, which is why I dreaded so much talking about this today, because I know I'm guilty of this. I've had to ask the Lord to forgive me many times this week. And you know, it's funny, when you're talking to a group of people about judging, not judging, it's amazing how many times you catch yourself during the week doing it. I feel like such a wretch this morning. But the truth is, we're all just a hot mess, aren't we? So what Jesus is saying here is not that, we're, that, that we are not to criticize or condemn others' actions. Can you believe she did that? Or their attributes or their possessions. Can you believe that car he's driving? He doesn't deserve a car like that. Or their positions. Can you believe he got that job? I can't believe they gave him a raise and not me. Or their portfolio. You really think he's that, that much money? I don't think he does. Their attire. I cannot believe what she had on today. (laughs) And on and on it goes. We're really good at casting judgment on just about anybody who isn't like us. But how silly is that? If you just take five minutes and just do a little inventory of your own life and realize what kind of wretched sinner we all are, we really should just keep our mouths shut. And here's another thing. We've got to be very careful to never ascribe a moral value to our own personal preference. The judgmental person usually becomes a gossip as well. And sometimes we clothe the gossip in spirituality. It's called a prayer request. (laughs) Judgment often leads to gossip, which then leads to rumors, which then leads to animosity, which then leads to division, which then leads to broken relationships, which then leads to ruined lives. And it even splits churches. I read about another guy this week. And he'd been stranded on an island by himself for 30 years and they finally got to the island to rescue him. And when they got there, they were amazed at this guy's creativity and and his ability to build. They said, well, that's a nice building right there. What is that? He said, well, that's my house. I built my house. I mean, had 30 years, nothing else to do, so I just started building. They said, wow, that's very nice. What about this second building? He said, well, that's my church. It's really nice. Wow, that's beautiful. What about this third building? He goes, well, that's my other church. I got mad at the first one. (laughs) That's... uh, I don't know if that's a true story or not, but I liked it. (laughs) But wouldn't it be nice if we could just learn to disagree without casting judgment? Here's the thought. If you want to be more holy, maybe we should just hush. Hmm. So that's how we got to deal with each other. And that's how we must deal with the world. Those who do not know Christ. And by the way, it's unfair for us who are members of the family to judge others who are not members of the family. You know why? Because we have a standard of of morality that's different than the world's. Our standard is the Bible. It's scripture. But many people you come across, they don't believe this is even true. They certainly don't believe that Jesus is the savior of the world. So how can we expect them to live like we think they should live when they don't even see this as the basis for morality? Right? So we love them and we show them grace and we show them mercy and we show them kindness. And when we point them to the truth of the gospel so that God might save their soul, that God would draw them to him. And then there's others in the church who are new believers and then others in here that have been walking with the Lord for 80 years. Another thing that has really burned in my soul this week is that we have to learn to be patient with the pace of God in other people's lives. But we all judge superficially and we all know that we're going to be judged superficially, which is why some of you took so long to get ready for church today. You just want to make sure you look right because if you don't, you're going to be talked about. 
We gotta love ourselves, but we ought to love others as much as we love ourselves. That's the second greatest commandment, right? So what we wear, how we look, how's our hair, what we drive, where we live, what we do, how we do it, everyone has an opinion. Most of the time they share it with others, but not with you. And we're all guilty of this, right? So what Jesus is saying is don't be like the Pharisees. Don't do this. Don't judge hip, uh, superficially. Don't judge unfairly. And thirdly, don't judge hypocritically. Those who are hypocritical are those who condemn the very stuff they're guilty of, right? I heard this statement from my friend Adam Dooley this week and I really loved it. He said, the hypocritical are often the most hypercritical. They will tell you what's wrong with everything and then not lift a single finger to help you fix anything. So we love to harp on other people's sins and we tend to really harp on those sins and others that we are often most guilty of ourselves because it's way easier to get down on somebody else. And our sin looks a little better to us, but when we see our sin on other people, it's really, really ugly. And it's so much easier just to talk about them than it is to fix ourselves, isn't it? And that's exactly what Jesus talks about when he uses this as an example in verse three. Why do you look at the splinter or the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam or the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that splinter or that speck out of your eye and, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, Jesus says. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? Let me use this as an example. Hey, Ra, can you see this speck in my eye? You can't see it? Oh, you know why he can't see the speck in my eye? Because he's too far away. One thing I've noticed is that we got a lot of speck inspectors in church. And in order to inspect the speck, you have to be intentionally looking for it. So many of us are intentionally looking to find faults in other people. We're like a physician who's charged with removing a speck from somebody's eye while he's more sick than the patient he's being critical of. That's why Jesus says, fix yourself first. Take the log out of your own eye. And I think that when he said this, people laughed. It's kind of a funny visual, really. To have a log in your eye, it's painful. But it's so funny how many people have logs in their eyes and don't even realize it. So make sure your heart is right in the matter and that your motives are pure and that you have a good understanding of your own thoughts before you confront another believer about their faults. But he's not saying, don't try to help your fellow believer. Did you see verse five? Pay attention to this. He says, first, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus isn't saying, don't make a judgment at all. What he's saying is, make sure you're right before you go try to fix somebody else. But once you are right, then do everything you can to help fix your brother's life. That's what he's saying. So Jesus is saying, don't judge to condemn, but do judge to correct. So this passage is less about what we do than it is about how we're supposed to do it. And we need to be very careful to live honest and authentic lives in Christ and fix ourselves first. So get rid of the logs. So Jesus starts with talking about specks and logs, and then he 
And next verse, verse six goes and starts talking about dogs and hogs. Listen to this. So it says, don't judge. But then he says, learn to discern. There's a difference between being judicious and judicial. It's God's job to be judicial. He's the judge. But it is very wise for you and me to be judicious, to discern. So we're not to condemn, but we are to discriminate, to discern. Look what Jesus says in verse six. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Now, how can you determine what's a dog and what's a hog if you can't judge? No, you are to judge. You have to be able to determine. So God is saying, Jesus is saying, use wisdom to discern who are the dogs and who are the swine and don't cast your pearls among them. What does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is we need to treat that which is holy as holy. We need to treat the mysteries and the wonder of God as an important thing not to be joked about. That which is holy in the eyes of God is not, is not something to be treated lightly. So we need to treat that which is holy with a reverence and a respect for which it deserves. And therefore, we need not waste our time trying to defend or protect or even present that which is holy to those who have, to those who have no interest or who have an obvious animosity towards the truth of the gospel. So we present the truth in love and if it's wholeheartedly rejected, then we do what Jesus said to the disciples when he sent them out two by two. You shake the dust off your feet and you move on. The truth of the gospel leaves no room for us to be gullible or spineless or naive, wasting our time chasing after things or ideas that are contrary to the teachings of Christ. Be firm in your faith and firm in your convictions. And it doesn't mean that we stop sharing the gospel or stop praying for those who are lost or stop loving and stop sharing the truth. But when the gospel is abhorred by that individual or that group, when the word of God is absolutely mocked and when there's an outright refusal for them to listen, then take the pearl of truth somewhere else. There's millions of people who need to hear and want to hear. So discern between the poor in spirit and the pig in spirit. God will help you do that. So we don't judge. We don't judge unfairly. We don't judge superficially. We don't judge hypocritically, but we do discern righteously. Don't hang with the hogs. Thirdly, instead of pointing, start praying. Now, it's very interesting to me that Jesus, in the midst of talking about don't judge and then eventually getting to the golden rule, he throws in this part about prayer. Or could it be that he's continuing his conversation about prayer all along? I believe that's exactly what's happening. Because sandwiched in between these two famous statements of Christ about judging not and about uh, doing unto others as they would have you do unto them is this, these verses about prayer. What does he say? He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it, the door will be opened to you. Each one of these statements is in the present imperative tense, meaning ask now, oh, and keep on asking. Seek now and keep on seeking. Knock now and keep on knocking. 
See, God does not withhold good things from his children. And as our heavenly father, he wants to give us what we need and what we desire. And as long as it is within the context of his will for our lives. A.C. Dixon said it this way. When we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do and so on. But when we rely on prayer, we get what only God can do. Why is it so difficult for us to pray? I think because it takes a whole lot of time and a whole lot of discipline. It's a two-way conversation, you know. It's not just you talking to God, it's him talking to us. And oftentimes we use our time in prayer to just ask God for stuff. We treat God like he's sort of a big cosmic Santa Claus in the sky, right? But he's a lovingly heavenly father that gives and takes away. And he guides us and he molds us into what he was created us to be. And sometimes his answer is yes, sometimes it is no, and sometimes it is wait a while. You ever ask God for something and you just prayed and prayed and prayed and asked him for something and, and 20 years later you look back and you're so glad he didn't say yes? Yeah? Anybody date somebody like that? Oh, you wanted to marry him so bad and that 20 years later you're like, oh, thank you Jesus for not answering that prayer. Yeah. It's because he knows what's best for us. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. So go to him, not just once a week on a Sunday morning, but all day, every day. What he's saying is pray without ceasing, just like Paul told us. Our prayer should be an ongoing, never-ending conversation with our creator. Asking, seeking, knocking, and never stopping. And that's when you begin to truly unlock the treasures of God's will and his goodness in your life. I read a story, a long article about Harold Carter this week. I mean, and, and I don't know if you know who Harold Carter is, but he's a very well-known archaeologist, and, and he's the guy who discovered King Tut's tomb. And it's an amazing story because, you see, he was digging for many, many years along with lots of other archaeologists, and they finally got to the point around around 1918 where all the other archaeologists figured they'd seen and uncovered everything there was to uncover. But Harold Carter believed there was something more. And sure enough, four years later, he finally found it. Twice in a six-year period, he was within two yards of this tomb, but he didn't see it, didn't find it. He didn't dig down far enough. He didn't dig hard enough. And one day, one morning, in the midst of this dig that they're doing that was funded, by the way, by a guy named George Herbert. He was the Earl of Carnarvon. And it's not a big deal, except that it's kind of a little bit, a, a bit of interesting trivia. The man who was funding this dig was an, an aristocrat from England. And the house in which he lived is the actual house where they filmed Downton Abbey. <laughs> so it's got an eight, but anyway, he was the guy who was funding this adventure that Harold Carter was leaving, leading. And one morning, Harold Carter gets to the dig site and instead of his normal jovial team, they're all standing at this one little spot in shock and also in amazement. Because in their digs that morning before he had gotten there, they had uncovered a stair. And then they had uncovered another stair and a third stair. And by the time he got there, they were all just standing around waiting to see what he wanted to do. And so by the end of that day, they had dug 12 steps down and encountered a door. He opened that door just a little bit and was able to peek in and see 30 feet cor a 30-foot corridor that led to what looked like another door. 
Well, they covered up the dig site. They wanted to keep it from Tomb Raiders. And then he called George Herbert, his benefactor. And he said, you need to come to Egypt now. So about two weeks later, George Herbert was able to get there and they finished the dig. They went through that first door, another 30 feet. And then the big moment, there's another door and he uncovers the top right corner of that door, just enough to where he can peer in. And then he got quiet. And he just kept looking and it was quiet. And, it, and after several minutes, George Herbert said, good grief, son, what's in there? And Harold Garda was speechless. He said, wonderful things, wonderful things. Because he was looking into the tomb, the untouched tomb that was 2,000 years old of young teenage King Tutankhamen, or as we know him, King Tut. Untouched articles, beautiful, gold, priceless treasures. And to me, that's such a beautiful picture of what prayer is. Yeah, it takes a little time. Yeah, it takes some discipline. But if you'll just keep digging, you will uncover the treasures of God that you never dreamed possible. You will get to know him like you never thought you could. And you will experience a relationship and a fellowship with him that you didn't know was even possible. Ask, he says, and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking me. He says, seek me and you will find me. Knock and just keep on knocking and I promise you, you will uncover the greatest treasure that you ever dreamed possible. The glory and the wonder and the grace and fellowship with your almighty creator. What a gift, what a treasure that is. And here this passage sits in the middle of don't judge and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus says, for everyone who asks, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good, good things to those who ask him? And I struggled all week long with the flow of this passage. Why is this in the middle of talking about this other relationship stuff? not judging others and learning to discern and how to avoid treating everyone as we would, you know, we don't want to be treated and all of this. And, and then it dawned on me, well, unless my relationships are absolutely grounded in prayer, then it's impossible. So a lot of us are doing good things for God, but many of us don't spend any time with God. And if you want to strengthen your relationships and deal with others properly, then you desperately need time in prayer. Because prayer is the tool by which God uses to fix us and shape us and mold us into the kind of person he wants us to be. And prayer is the tool that puts our hearts and our minds in a place of right relationship and fellowship with God so that our relationship with others become glorifying to him. What are the two great commandments? Again, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So ask, seek, and knock persistently and consistently, and then you'll have the strength to do what Jesus says in this all-important and very famous verse, verse 12. In fact, let's just say it together. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same 
for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Did you see that word therefore? Kind of makes you ask the question, what's it there for? Because Jesus is using this statement as the very climactic statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount. This is the Mount Everest of Christian ethics, according to William Barclay. This is the climactic moment of the entire message. Jesus brilliantly sums up the whole thing in just one sentence. Amazing, isn't it? And most cultures, Confucianism, Socrates, Plato, all the rest, use a version of the golden rule, but they use it in the negative. They always say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus takes it a step further and he makes it positive. In other words, the other ways are passive. What Jesus is saying is be active, not passive. And finally, in the context of this verse, I want to remind you also to always treat people with grace. Jesus was a man of grace. All grace, and Jesus was also a man of truth. All truth. But having all grace in your life and no truth makes you a liberal. Having all truth in your life and no grace makes you a legalist. But to be full of grace and truth makes you like our Lord. So when it comes to treating others the way they want to be treated, always lean on the side of grace. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Now, the way I want to close today is to read this passage to you from the message. The, <laughs> there, this is a wonderful, wonderful translation in this particular passage, I believe, because it really captures the emotion of what Jesus was saying. So from the message, I'm going to read this passage so that we all are very clear on what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus said, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, from the message. Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier than thou part instead of just living your part. So wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Don't be flipped with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. Don't bargain with God. Be direct. Ask for what you need. This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game that we're in. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at, l you're at least decent to your own children, so don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? And here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. So here's the keys to living the golden rule. Don't judge. Learn to discern righteously. Instead of pointing, start praying. You notice that when you point, you always have three point, point back at you. Be active, not passive, and never shy away from the truth, but always treat people with grace. As I was thinking about this sermon this week, I decided I would just write a little poem that sums up the whole thing. 
It's in your notes on your app, and so if you want it, it's there. But it's just a silly little poem that helps me understand this passage. Here's what I wrote for you. Get rid of the logs. Don't hang with the hogs. Use prayer as your tool, then follow the rule. If your motive is pure, then it's golden for sure. It works for me as well as for you, as long as we're grounded in grace and in truth. Will you bow your heads, please? I struggled a lot with this passage because I couldn't figure out, number one, how it flowed together, and secondly, the Lord just kept reminding me of how many times I've been guilty of all this. I wonder here today how many relationships that you have that have been broken because we were judgmental or because we were too harsh or because we were critical or simply because we had a log in our own mind, spent way more time trying to get the speck out of the other. Is that you this morning? I pray that God would break us. I pray that God would mold us and shape us into who we need to be so that as believers, we can authentically worship him, not just in this room, but everywhere we go. I'm going to ask you would stand. We'll sing a little chorus. This is not a real highly emotional or huge altar call moment for most of us. But there may be somebody in this room and you're seeking after God and you're not sure how to find him. Can I just remind you of what Jesus said? Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and he'll open the door of heaven for you. If that's you and you're looking for hope and looking for something to fill that emptiness in your soul, Jesus is the answer. So why don't you come, come down this aisle, take one of these counselors by the hand and simply say, hey, I want to meet Jesus. And they will help you ask the Lord into your life. Seek him to give you forgiveness and a hope. And you're going to knock on heaven through a prayer. And the Lord will answer that prayer and he'll save your soul. So if that's you today, come take one of these people by the hand. Simply help them. Uh, ask them to help you find the Lord. We want you to know the Lord before you leave here today. And then the rest of us, you know, we have this proclivity to be really judgmental about everybody and everything. Maybe God's broken you over that today. If he has, then just come to the altar. Kneel and pray. So as we sing, will you consider these things? Break it, 
morning. Father, every one of us are guilty of this stuff. And I pray, God, that you would heal us from a judgmental spirit. God, help us not to be overly critical. And God, give us an understanding heart for those who don't know you. But Lord, as members of the family, may we treat each other, Lord, with the respect and the kindness that each of us deserves. May we do unto others this week as we would have them do to us. May we live the golden rule more than we have in a long, long time, God. Remind us, God, with every situation that comes up this week. Remind us of what your word says. It might just be the catalyst that opens the heart of those who don't know you because they simply see the kindness and the genuine love of our hearts that's been motivated by you. So Lord, I pray that you would bless this church. I pray that you would bless every individual as we leave today, that you would use us, but also God, that you would break us. May we not be judgmental. May we not judge unfairly. May we not judge superficially. May we not judge hypocritically, but Lord, give us discernment. And then Lord, as we seek you, may we seek with all that we have and all that we are. And may we find you, Lord, the treasures of your wonder and your glory. And then Lord, use us to treat others like we should be treated. And with that, Lord, we'll give you all the glory and all the praise and the honor. Let's do your holy name. Use us this week, we pray, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week, everybody. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition in your life of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. If you would like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we would love to chat with you about that. I would encourage you to email us at the address that is on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. And if you would like to help to contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love, to let them know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, that he rose again, and through Christ, we have hope.